It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lauritsen. I have something that, I don't know if embarrassment is the right word, but it's the one that's coming to mind right now. I don't think I've ever talked about this in any kind of public capacity, but I've been really sensitive to something that happens often when I'm working out at the gym or in a yoga class. And there are times where I have been doing a really intense workout or in maybe a deep restorative hip opener or doing some really challenging yoga pose. And I'll I'll notice that there have been a lot of times where two things will happen. My body will start uncontrollably shaking. And I've actually broken down in yoga class and cried and and sometimes more embarrassingly at the gym around of like grunting and heavy weightlifting and posturing and rippling muscles. Like I've actually cried in the gym. And it's interesting to kind of reflect back on this, especially during our recent quarantine and not really going to the gym or yoga classes and not having those options available. But I recently started doing some physical therapy for a foot injury. And there have been moments where I guess I've been unlocking some energy and some things in my body that those same sensations have been coming up of my body trembling and shaking uncontrollably. And even this morning doing my physical therapy exercises, wanting to cry. And I've never had a really an answer to all this. And and Whitney, you've actually been in yoga class with me. There was a couple of years ago, we did some deep, deep Deep work and I started just crying in the middle of class. And I just wanted to use this as a jump off point, Krista, having you on the podcast here with, with Whitney and I to jump into a little bit of going to these deeper layers of healing. And I'm just super curious, like what, what is happening when we're in yoga, we're working out, we're doing some deep work and, and we start this trembling or shaking or crying or emotional release, like what the heck is happening? And, and also Whitney, chime in on this because I know you've had some pretty intense experiences in your yoga classes too. I have. And I think it's always such a beautiful thing when that happens. I think that when we open ourselves up and get vulnerable, I think that's kind of what, for lack of a better term, we should be doing. You know, I think when we try so hard to prevent ourselves from opening up in that way, it actually doesn't serve us. And in fact, I had another experience that goes along with this, Jason. I have been running my Beyond Measure program and group calls every week. And this past weekend, there was somebody who was, it was his second call ever. I think we've done five or six now. And he, on the second call, decided to get a little bit more involved and vulnerable. I always give people the option of just observing because as much as I love it when people crack themselves open, I also know that some people aren't ready for that and they have boundaries around that and they're afraid, they're unsure. And it can be tough in group settings, whether it's a yoga class or it's a support group like Beyond Measure. And for this man on his second appearance in the group, at the very end of the call, we had finished a group exercise and he started sharing about his experience with it and started crying. And he apologized for it. And the group was incredibly supportive because that's what we do. We support one another. But he felt what I perceived as a lot of like shame or embarrassment for crying during this session, even though that's what it's for in his head, I think it didn't feel appropriate. And I think it was so interesting, similar to what you're saying with yoga or meditation or whatever we're doing in a group setting. For some reason, we're kind of like conditioned or under the set of beliefs that it's not okay to cry publicly. It's not okay to share our emotions. I think men struggle with this a lot. 
And it was just such an interesting thing of seeing his reaction and trying to comfort him and let him know that that is okay. And I I had this moment of, oh my gosh, maybe he's never going to come back to these calls. Maybe he's going to be so afraid of being vulnerable that it'll cause him not to ever want to do it again with us. And that was really interesting, too. And I wonder how many people have that experience where maybe they go to yoga and like they get really emotional and they think, well, I'm not going back to that again, you know, or I'm not doing that breath work class or that meditation or I'm not reading that book or watching this movie. And and I think that's super fascinating, Jason. So that's kind of like my experience. And I'm curious for both you and Krista, like what that brings up for you and how even observing other people and their fears of opening up in those settings. So Whitney, I think you and Jason both touched on something really interesting, which is that there's this component of shame attached to these things, right? Like crying or like shaking or trembling or in any way appearing weak or vulnerable. And what's happening is that our body is feeling safe enough to discharge this stored survival energy that's been stuck in our body. And when that happens, it's such a beautiful thing because that's when such huge transformation can happen. And it happens too because this stuff gets stuck in our body when we're not allowed to fully express it as it happens, right? So when we're in a stressful situation and we don't allow ourselves to fully express the entire range of emotion that's attached to that situation, it ends up becoming, for lack of a better term, stuck in our physical bodies. And then when we presented with these opportunities, and often it's in situations, Jason, like you said, like where you're at the gym or you're in a yoga class doing a deep hip opener, and we're really deeply digging into some of these places in our physical body, it can't help but come out and be expressed. And I think that so often there is the shame attached to it. And part of what my work in the world is to do is to change that narrative and to change how we view those physiological expressions as just a normal part of our nervous system reacting to life. It's such a fascinating thing, Krista, because I think on one level in observing animals, right, I always look at, say, Evie, Whitney's dog or my dog, Bella, or or any of my friend's dogs, and, and not just dogs, but observing other animals that when they are going through a frightening situation or they're terrified or there's some, I suppose, disruption or stimulation of their nervous system, they immediately like shake it off. They like kind of do this quick shake and take a breath and then they're done with it. And it's interesting to think about as humans, what is the biological adaptation or advantage, if any, like, why do we, and I don't think I've ever asked anyone this, I'm so curious about your take, why do we as humans have this biological ability or default mechanism in in a lot of people, perhaps, most people maybe, that when we experience stress, trauma, something we deem as negative, that we somatically store it and compartmentalize it and be like, okay, I just, I don't have time to cry. I don't have time to deal with it. We store it. Like, why are we doing that? And why do you think that happens in the physical body? And more so, and this maybe is a, I'm just getting real deep. We're going right in the deep end. Like, why has that become a cultural narrative of let's not deal with emotions in the moment they want to be dealt with and store it for later, knowing full well, at some point we're going to have to deal with it. It almost makes me wonder, like, maybe if I store it away, I'll never have to deal with it, right? And that uh, to add on to this question here is I'm really fascinated about, you know, I always get stuck on this word, Jason, epi- 
Epigenetics. Thank you. Epigenetics. And that process of passing things down through our DNA and what are we holding on to that our ancestors, parents, or grandparents held on to? How does that manifest for us? Like, I mean, actually, the more I think about it, the more I wonder, like with my parents, for example, like the things that they don't deal with, like, do they come up in me because it needs an outlet? Or because they're not dealing with it, then is a disservice to children if their parents are like, I'm just going to deny this. But I almost feel like on some level that these emotions are going to find their way out no matter what and no matter how much we try to suppress them. Okay. So there's like 10 topics that we could cover just in what we just brought up in the last few minutes. There's Yes, there's so much to talk about here. Okay. So Jason, to answer your question of why do we suppress this stuff? I don't know. I don't really have a good answer for why we do that, except to say that I think it's cultural conditioning, because I don't think that that's necessarily the way that all humans deal with it. I think it's something that we deal with in sort of the Western world. We have this notion. So here's an example. Like with boys, with children, we tell them at a young age, we have this distinction, don't cry right? In order to be tough, in order to be seen as like a boy to become a man, don't cry, don't show this emotion and shut it down. And so we teach our kids at this super young age to start this process of suppressing things. And I don't know that there's a biological wiring for that, except that the shaking or crying gets viewed as a vulnerability. And I think that we are hardwired to think that vulnerability is not a strength, right? We don't like seeing that because it compromises the tribe, if you will, right? Of people as we've evolved that, you know, weakness and vulnerability are not the things that we want to see in other people. And I don't know if that's where it comes from, but I know that it definitely gets reinforced this cultural level. And it's interesting too, because if you watch little kids, they actually just express themselves and allow this stuff to go through them completely and fully, right? So I have a son, he's a toddler right now, and we are in the tantrum phase. So if there's any other parents listening to this and your kids are old enough to have gone through the tantrum phase, you know what I'm talking about. And it's so fascinating for me to watch him because he goes from so angry and so full of frustration and tears into smiling and cuddling with me so fast that my brain can't catch up to what happened and can't even figure out like why he was upset in the first place. And he, meanwhile, has moved on. And the reason that he's able to move on is because he just feels it. He doesn't know to suppress it. He doesn't know to have any shame about writhing around on the floor. And so he just lets it all flow through him. And there's actually a lot to be learned from him watching that, that when we don't and when we end up, again, locking this stuff up in ourselves, that's when we do damage. And, you know, to your point, Whitney, about how this stuff gets passed down, I think you're absolutely right. Like we know through epigenetics that this stuff can change our DNA and different expressions of our DNA that do affect our children. And it's kind of mind-blowing the way that this stuff gets passed down. And it actually, it makes a lot of sense from a survival standpoint, the way that that happens. Because essentially, if you have parents who are living in a stressful environment, then that changes markers in their DNA that then inform their children that the environment that they're about to be born into is also stressful. And so it's sort of preparing them in a way to deal with that same environment that the parents are. So from an evolutionary perspective, it's actually rather brilliant. The problem is, is that when it's constantly danger in the environment and constantly not a safe place and constantly changing these genes to our detriment, that's when it starts to really wreak havoc. And I think you're absolutely right, Whitney, that, you know, there's a point where this stuff is going to come out and whether it comes out in 
our parents or our grandparents or comes out in ourselves or in our children, eventually it's like water eroding in the ground eventually creates a canyon. And in the same way, it'll find a way out in our family lineage. And when we are that person that sort of knows that it's going to come out with us, that it's a huge responsibility because we're really bearing the weight of all of this work that these people that came before us weren't able to do for whatever reason. And and it's just, it's this huge responsibility and it doesn't get talked about enough. And it's often, it's lonely work and it's isolating. And again, that's sort of my mission is to help change that narrative because because I think so many people are starting to wake up to this idea that they are the ones that need to process this for their family line and and that they're the ones that have to do that work. And so I'm seeing that conversation start to slowly change and evolve to sort of be more accepting of that work and of that reality. But man, we still have a really long way to go. I just feel like I'm... I don't know. I, I've had this sensation, Krista, like as you were talking that I, I, I feel like I want to cry in this moment. I'm not quite quite sure why. Maybe because I'm just feeling like this is a super emotional topic for me and I'm not, I don't know. It's just such an interesting moment. We've cried on this podcast before. This is not a new... <laughs> It's not a new phenomenon, but I think talking about the lineage part of this that you and Whitney so brilliantly spoke to, in terms of the things that we deal with that our parents either weren't aware of or things that they've passed to us that now we become aware of and now we have chosen often courageously to deal with, as you said, in, in isolation and dealing with these things alone. And you know, I think for me, one of my greatest fears has been around parenthood. I've talked about this in, in previous podcast episodes, but I think one of the fears that I have around it is that somehow becoming a father will unlock some latent or more deeply buried traumas from my lineage that I'm not even aware of. And it scares me. I'm not sure why it scares me, but it scares me the idea of thinking about having to process hidden or deeper traumas as a result of becoming a parent and a father. And I'm so curious in your journey of motherhood and also being this wonderful practitioner with the healing work you do around trauma, did becoming a mother unlock any deeper layers for you of like, wow, I had no idea that I had that come up or that issue or this deeper trauma maybe you weren't aware of? What was that process like and did it unearth any of those latent maybe deeper levels that you had to deal with or are dealing with. It's funny because I think that's true for a lot of people. And I think that that's a lot of people's story. And I think for whatever reason, I was blessed to get to do it a little bit differently. And to your point about being scared to have kids and sort of recreate these traumas, if you will, that was my fear. And I was very, very aware of that from a pretty early age. And so I kind of waited to have kids. I actually, I knew that in order for me to feel comfortable transitioning into motherhood, that I needed to do some of the work on myself first because I was not willing to pass that shit down onto my kids. I knew that it needed to stop with me, even if that meant that I ultimately didn't have kids. Like I was willing, like I just felt it so deeply in my bones that that was my responsibility, that I had to get to this place where I felt healed enough to allow the responsibility of children to come into my life because I really, I knew that I was not going to do it the way that my parents did. And so what actually ended up happening for me, this is one of the things that actually surprised me the most about having my son is that I knew that the work I had put into myself and into changing the trauma narrative in my family was going to affect him. I knew that even before he was born, he already was going to have a better life than I had been given. What I didn't know and what I didn't expect was that it was going to change the narrative 
backwards. So it was going to change the story with my parents and then it was going to change the relationship that I had with them. I mean, it surprised the hell out of me. I was willing, so let's just get into it. So when my son was born, I hadn't spoke to my father in, oh God, I don't know, but close to a decade. I hadn't had any meaningful interaction with him and I had consciously cut him out of my life. That was a decision that I made fully aware that he would not be a part of my children's life. And I was okay with that. And I had needed to do that and set that boundary to protect myself and to protect my own healing development that I had done. And and after my son was born, something shifted in me and changed. And I was able to look, how do I want to say this? I had my infant son in my arms and I realized that somewhere along the line, my father had been this tiny baby in his mother's arms and that something happened that he wasn't able to deal with the shit that had been handed to him and that turned him into the man that became my father and something about seeing the innocence and the purity of my own son i realized that i couldn't hold that against my father for not being strong enough to do the work that i had been called to do and in that way i was able to allow him back into my life and it was hard it felt very tender and raw and delicate at first i mean he didn't meet my son for weeks because i wasn't ready to let him in and and then when he finally did and and we gently sort of tiptoed back into having a relationship i have to say that like of all the people in our life right now my father is probably one of the people in my son's life that he's the closest to like it has absolutely changed the dynamic. And if you had asked me if this was possible even a year, well, no, I guess not a year ago, two years ago, I would have said no freaking way. And the healing that it's allowed both, again, for my son down the line then backwards for my father, it's just, it's been incredible. It's made all of the hard work and all of the effort and all of the lonely nights crying, wishing for my parents to be in my life worth it because what I got back in was better than I could have ever imagined. Wow. I am so grateful that you shared that, Krista, because just that line about remembering that your father was once this little innocent child is such important information. And it's something that I try to work on a lot too. I think I spent so much of my life almost from like this victimhood mentality. And I think a lot of our, at least in the US, our culture perpetuates this idea of victim. And in some cases, it's extremely justified. But sometimes I feel like it takes away from us recognizing that it's not just about us. Like, in other words, sometimes like we can get so focused on our experiences and how we're affected by things and into this place of blaming or creating ourselves to be a victim without recognizing that the person that we're having this experience with has also experienced hardships and trauma and something shaped them to where they are, where they're acting in this way that's hurt us. And I find it very helpful when I can step back and say, I'm hurt, but I believe that this person is hurt too or was hurt in the past. And that might be why they're doing something that's causing me hurt. And it has really helped me because when things aren't just about me all the time, I feel more connected to the whole world, right? Like that's what connection is all about. And it's very easy to feel disconnected when we're constantly 
focused on how we're affected by things. And so whether it's our parent or a stranger on the internet or anybody that we're coming in contact with, there is something that led them to that point. And I think it's incredibly important for us to do that. Otherwise, we can almost dehumanize people when we put ourselves in that place of the victim all the time without recognizing that that person is human too and they're flawed and they've had those traumas and those all of those things that have led them to that place. But it's not always that easy. And Jason, I'm curious how you are feeling listening to this because I know that you often feel very tender whenever you think about your father. And I'm curious, after hearing this, what came up for you? It's really interesting because, yeah, it definitely touches on some really, really deep emotions around the work with my dad. And similar to what you had so beautifully detailed, Krista, about imagining your father as an infant in your grandmother's arms, one of the biggest turning points in healing the deep anger deep resentment, deep wounding and and victimhood I felt with my father. And this was apart from him because my father passed and I didn't have an opportunity to necessarily do this work with him. It was after he left his physical body. I started to dig a little bit deeper into what he had experienced with his father, talking to my mom about it and people that were close to my dad about his relationship with his dad and, and sort of the male lineage of what he went through. And the biggest thing I had with my father was his absence, his abandonment, his addiction, a lot of the things that I labeled him as, you're a piece of shit, you're a bad father, you were never there for me, you abandoned us, that narrative. But once I really got to zoom out and see a larger picture of him as a young boy growing up in Puerto Rico and his relationship with his dad and his grandfather, like multiple generations of addiction and misogyny and abandonment and not being there, he just took that pattern and that was what he knew. He took the pattern of how his father treated him and repeated it and probably how his grandfather treated his father and God knows how many lineages or how many generations of that lineage rather. And once I got that zoomed out perspective of similarly imagining my dad as a boy and a young man going through what he went through with his father, coming to the, the mainland, the States, meeting my mom, having me, and then repeating essentially almost to a T the same archetype he had experienced. It gave me so much compassion for him for the first time in my life of how else could he have responded other than what he knew? My father wasn't interested in going to therapy or getting treatment for his alcohol and drug addiction. He wasn't interested in, I suppose, accessing those healing modalities. And, and maybe in the 70s and the 80s, when he was in the depth of it, didn't the resources weren't as plentiful as they are now. So all of those things taken into consideration, it really got me to a point where I was like, with his awareness and his lineage and his genetics and his willingness to work or not work on himself, he did the best he could. And that was a tremendous healing point for me. Tremendous healing point. It's funny that you say that because I can remember at one point in my 20s having this realization that when I sort of got past the age that my parents were when they had me, or at least my mother, I realized like, Oh good lord, I couldn't have a baby right now. Like she was a child. Like I'm I'm not a I'm like 22. I'm not a full-grown adult yet. No wonder this was the best she could do. Like she didn't know any better. So it's interesting that you say that because so often when we just have kids without thinking about it, that's exactly what happens is they just recreate these cycles, right? And so there's a really interesting term called a transitional character. So this is a term that was coined by Carl Fred Broderick, and I'm going to read the description. This is his words. So a transitional character 
is one who, in a single generation, changes the entire course of a lineage. The most noteworthy examples are those individuals who grow up in an abusive, emotionally destructive environment and who somehow find a way to metabolize the poison and refuse to pass it on to their children. They break the mold. And I remember the first time I came across that description and that definition, and it floored me because I had never heard anyone put to words sort of what I knew deep down in my body was that this is who I was, that I was this transitional character. And it just, it was so validating to have that be acknowledged, right? That this is, I love that line, that are willing to metabolize the poison because that's what it felt like. Like when I was growing up in the house that I did with my father and his uncontrolled rage and anger and temper, I could see exactly where it was coming from because his father was exactly the same way. And I was sort of stuck in that cycle and I knew that it needed to stop and that it was going to stop with me. I had no idea how that was going to happen, but I was just aware at this really young age of being able to sort of see those patterns and see that this wasn't even him, that this was just the stuff that his father had given to him and Lord only knows where my grandfather got it from. What's interesting too about the whole dynamic of our relationship, and I think Whitney, you were the one that brought up this idea of compassion, is that you know a lot of the work that I did on myself and, and one of the like pillars of work that I do with coaching clients is cultivating self-compassion. You know, I have tools and ways that we access that. And my favorite way is through nervous system literacy, which we can get into more. But the idea is that when you start to cultivate compassion for yourself, there's a couple of things that happen. One, life gets easier and better for you. But then two, the sort of surprising thing about it is that that compassion doesn't end at your water's edge, right? It spills out. It starts to expand into the people around you in your everyday life, to the person that cuts you off in traffic, to the coworker that is snarky to you in the hallway, or your partner having a long day at the end of coming in and having a long day and snipping at you, or even back to our family, to your parents, right? When you start to understand, again, when you have this awareness of how someone else might have ended up where they are, you are able to see the common humanity between them and you, and you're able to bring that to the table to have some compassion for maybe why they're behaving the way that they are. You're not excusing it. Certainly, it's not saying that their behavior is okay per se, but it's having an understanding and an acknowledgement of maybe why it's happening so that you can soften that interaction and soften that relationship both to yourself and then to that other person. The thing is, is that when I look back on it, the thing that changed in my relationship with my father wasn't him. He softened in his old age. His temper has definitely subsided and cooled. But the thing that changed was me, right? I did this inner work. And so I was then able to go to him with this new lens and with this different perspective on him and on myself and on what I wanted out of life and our relationship. And that's just it. Like there's this great Ram Das quote. And let me just start by saying I in no way say I'm thinking that I am enlightened. <laughs> but the quote says, if you think you're enlightened, try spending a week with your parents. And it just always makes me laugh because when I first came across that quote 15 years ago or whatever, I was like, yeah, okay, well, like, you know, that's never gonna happen for me. And I can kind of laugh now because I've done enough work that I'm like, okay, I could do that. I would 
would actually enjoy that, right? Again, it's not that they're any different. It's that I've changed. And that's what's so great about doing this work when we can take radical responsibility for ourselves. It changes life. It just, it makes things easier, right? Life is so hard in so many ways that when we can make it easier for ourselves, however and wherever we can, man, it just, it makes it that much more enjoyable. I just feel like there's so much to say and add to this. And first of all, I loved that you shared that Ram Dass quote, which I I think of a lot as well. But I also immediately thought like you and Jason have so much in common in that sense because he loves to drop quotes like that too, like Ram Dass. (laughs) You fit right in here on on our show in so many ways. And before Jason shares, I just wanted to acknowledge that point about softening. I love that. And that's such a beautiful way to express that. I think a lot of people are afraid to extend a lot of compassion when they feel hurt because it feels like if I forgive this person, they're just going to do it to me again or they're going to do it to somebody else. And this could be our personal experiences and this could be the experiences around the world. I think there's so much resentment that builds up towards one another. On the day of recording, there is another instance of the police shooting a man that was unarmed. And during Black Lives Matter, there's just so much anger and resentment towards the police. And we think like we have to go so far to prevent this. And some people express that in hatred and they express their feelings with violence And this absolute, like, all police are bad or, you know, and it's so complicated, right? Because it can come out with so much anger because all we want to do is stop something and and we feel like we can't soften. We have to be hard in order to make change. And I think that certain things, like perhaps with Black Lives Matter, it's really shifted a lot of my perception because even though as a white woman, there's so much that I will never fully understand about that anger. I am starting to kind of grok it (laughs) as much as I possibly can through learning from other people. And that I still have this desire to hold space for that or to offer softness because I don't want to go through life hard and rigid and angry as a way of taking action. I personally want to reserve some softness for everybody because of all the reasons that you're mentioning, Krista, because I know that even those policemen that are doing some horrific things, they too are human beings. And I don't know what shaped them. I don't know what led them to that moment. And I believe that there are good police out there, even though right now it feels easier to just have this blanket statement, right? And it's very complex. I'm curious about that too. And I didn't mean to like spin the conversation in this direction so we could address it later after Jason shares something. But I'm really fascinated with your perspectives on things like that too, Krista. Even for us as vegans, for example, like the vegan community can get incredibly angry and, and can be associated with rigid thinking and right or wrong, black or white. And there's so much resentment that can come up for vegans like wanting to say and do horrible things to people that that treat animals poorly. Right. And again, I can relate to that, but I also still have a lot of softness in my heart for people that participate in, in the animal industry because I don't know their whole story and what led them there. And I also believe everybody's on a different path of their journey. So who am I to be like, my way is the right way. My way of thinking is the right way. You're doing something wrong. You have to change. And you must be a horrible person if you're doing this. Uh, 
I definitely had a completely down the line question that I wanted to get to, but I think rather than put the pause button on this, Whitney, because it's so profound, the thing that comes up for me, and I don't know that I've ever quoted the Bible on this podcast ever. I think this might be the first time. And and this is not my attempt to one-up your Ramdas quote with a Jesus quote, Krista. <laughs> it's like, I see your Ramdas quote and I'll up you a Jesus quote. But what comes up for me is forgive them for they know not what they do. And when I feel into that quote, it's an extension of self-compassion to compassion for others in the sense that when people are making actions from choosing actions, from conditioned behavior, from ingrained belief systems, from the lineage genetic dynamics that have been passed on through multiple generations, they're often, and I, for myself too, how often do I act without full awareness, without a grasp of being fully conscious of my actions and the potential repercussions of my actions? And so... If I can realize that I endeavor to become a more aware and intentional and conscious person and act from that state of being, but there are many times I do not. And to think about whether it's a person who's taking someone's life, who whether it's a policeman or a lot of the violence we're experiencing, there's so much violence on the planet, especially right now in this moment. But to have compassion for someone who's not acting out of full awareness, who's not acting necessarily maybe even of their own volition, we just don't know. And so what comes up for me, Whitney, was just, yeah, how can I forgive myself when I, quote, do not know what I'm doing and I'm not acting from full awareness and full intention and full consciousness and extend that to others? It's a practice. I don't find it easy to do that, but it's a worthwhile practice. Yeah, Jason, I agree with you completely. It's not easy. and But I think it's so important, this component of self-awareness. And I think that so much begins there. I will say one thing that has helped me to sort of understand, you know, because it's easy. So when you're a self-aware person, right, a mostly self-aware or more self-aware than the average person, it's really easy to sort of go through life wondering why more people aren't like you, right? And I guess it, that's true whether it's self-awareness or any topic. Maybe it's, you know, veganism, right? Like why aren't more, you know, why aren't, don't more people understand this the way that I do? And at least with the self-awareness component, when I started really digging into this healing work, right? So I found this modality, TRE, Tension and Trauma Releasing Exercises. It made such a profound difference in my life, completely removed my panic attacks. I started digging into the mechanisms of how it worked, right? And this idea of sort of nervous system literacy. And when I started doing this, I started realizing and understanding how much people on a day-to-day -day basis are operating from this place of survival because we exist in this modern society that is not, we are not evolved and well-suited or adapted to deal with this, right? So whether you're dealing with sort of big T trauma or not, sort of like a catastrophic trauma, or you're just dealing with the trauma of living life in the year 2020, so many people are in this activated state and when you're in this place of survival and viewing the world, really what that means is that you're viewing the world as dangerous and not safe enough to engage in fully and completely with your guard let down, right? Or, you know, another way to say it is with softness. It means that that's where that anger is coming from. It, it all starts to sort of make sense why people would feel so angry or why people would behave in certain ways and also why they wouldn't have self-awareness, right? And when we can start to understand that, again, it can sort of soften how we are able to view them and to view ourselves when we're reacting from this place as well. 
And to go back to your point, Whitney, about the police for a moment, I agree. I don't think that all police are bad. And I think that they get a bad rap in the sense that they are often very traumatized as well. And that's not something that like, that gets a lot of discussion. And I think that it needs to. Again, I don't think it excuses their behavior, right? There's a lot of police brutality that's just, it's inexcusable. But that doesn't mean that we can't understand where it arrived from and where it came from and sort of what perpetuated its existence. Because I think that we need to be able to do that and have honest, real conversations about what's creating the dynamic of the systems that we're living in in order to change them. It's not just about, you know, defunding the police. It's not just about taking money away, right? That changes some things, but it's not changing why it's happening in the first place, where that sort of unchecked aggression is coming from and why it's allowed to perpetuate itself. And I think that until we have that conversation, I don't have a lot of hope that much is going to change. And I get too on the, the Black Lives Matter side of things where that anger comes from. And I don't, even the rioting, right? Like when people feel like they're left with no other choice, again, that survival energy, if you will, has to come out somehow. And when people are given no other choice, it starts to come out any way that it can. And so what we're seeing now is this sort of racial tension that's just this boiling up of unhealed trauma and of people not being able to process things. And it's just, it keeps getting worse because it's not being addressed at the root. And without addressing it there, that's what turns into the, you know, the kind of stuff that we're dealing right now. And it it's, I mean, I don't know, I'm at a loss for words, right? It's so, it's so devastating and it's so horrible. I mean, I'll be honest, like I saw this post yesterday of it's so raw and tender for me that it sickens me, but it was this, Resma Menachem posted this thing on Facebook about this 14-year-old black child that was electrocuted. He was put sentenced to death and he was wrongly accused of murdering these two white girls. And this was back in 1944. He posted the images of this child being trapped down in this chair. And I have not been able to get this image out of my head. And honestly, I haven't even known what to do with these feelings and these thoughts and these emotions. And the only thing that I can think to do is to come back to this place of trying to view it through this lens of compassion. And I know how fucked up that sounds because there's a part of me that just wants to rage. Like, how could anyone do that? Who could do that to a child? And then I realize it's people who don't know any better because they think that that's okay. And it's probably been shown to them that it was okay. And when I can start to frame it that way, in no way excuses this behavior or this awful image that I have in my head and my mind and my heart right now. But it, at least it can change the conversation about what we need to do to stop that from happening again, right? To stop the next police brutality or stop the next mother losing her son. I'm starting to trail off here now because this stuff, it just, even with knowing everything that I do and all the work that I've done, this stuff still is so emotionally raw and tender for me and it's overwhelming. And I think that's why it's so hard for people to have these conversations because we don't have good experience doing this and understanding things from other perspectives and being able to have these conversations and understand what we need to do to really change things. It is heart-wrenching and it's confusing and 
I think one of the best things that I've learned over the last few months of the current Black Lives Matter movement and things that have been happening in our country is I'd rather just move forward even though I feel confused and unsure. And I hope the same for other people because I think a huge part of the problem is standing still and like shrugging our shoulders. And it's like, well, I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to stay here until I figure it out. But sometimes we don't figure it out until we start moving and make mistakes. And Sometimes there's no explanation for things and it takes so much strength to do something when it is horrifying because I think we can start to feel very jaded and fearful. We're trying to protect ourselves like you were talking about survival (laughs) and trauma and there's just so much going on. I mean, going back to the police too, your point about the trauma that they see, I can't imagine. I mean, a lot of us like to watch true crime for entertainment, but we can just like turn our eyes away from some of these horrific things we see on the screen. But I can't imagine what it's like to be in that field and seeing horrific things and having to make the best decision you know how to in that moment or dealing with pressure from your higher ups. And a lot of us experience this in all different elements of our lives, personally or professionally. I mean, even in the animal industry, there's been interviews with people that have have worked slaughterhouses and they didn't want to be there, but they didn't know what other job they could have, or maybe they couldn't get another job. And there's just so much going on and so many different reasons and explanations for it. And we just have to keep doing our best with what we have in that moment and making the best decisions that we know how to make in that moment. And I, th- I really think that the issues of standing still and not taking action are not serving us. Neither are making so many judgments to other people and pushing them away because they don't agree with us or we don't like them because that just gets us further away from change. I think the thing that I'm really curious about is, for lack of a better term, it seems like a gap, but it also seems inextricably linked. The connection between individual healing and the healing of the collective. And to be tangential for just a moment, as we do here on the podcast, I personally have a lot of belief in whether you want to call it the unified field theory or a universal consciousness or the noosphere, there's a lot of different ways this has been characterized. But I do believe that there is a collective field of thought and consciousness that we are tapping into as individuals. And maybe using that as a jump off point, whether or not Krista, Whitney agree with that, I guess my question is, whereas if we as individuals acknowledge that we have lineage healing, we have some deep trauma release, we have, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about the polyvagal theory and and more about the nervous system, like we realize we have a stress response, that we are reactionary rather than responsive. We as individuals realize this and say, okay, I'm aware of this, but awareness isn't enough. Now I'm going to find a mentor or a coach like you or modalities tools to help me deal with this and do the hard work versus, as an example, I have a a good friend of mine, I won't mention him, but the people in his life, we kind of have a consensus that he really could benefit from some deep trauma release and some therapy and working on himself. And his attitude is like, I don't need any fucking therapy. I don't need to do shit. I'm fine the way I am. And the jump off here is like, we have the individual work from people that acknowledge and are aware they have work to do. But then there are God knows how many millions or billions of humans on the earth that are like, I don't need to do any fucking work. What are you talking about? So what is that bridge between the individual healing and then doing our best to heal the collective? Well, I think that's a great question. I think to your point, though, that when we can heal ourselves individually, it affects the collective. And I think that 
that's really been my own experience. Again, like with this example of my father, it had this ripple effect that I wasn't expecting. And I say that he didn't change, but it ended up changing our relationship, which ends up changing the environment all around us, right? And I think you're right. Some people are, they don't have the self-awareness to understand that they could probably benefit from things. And I think that we can't change other people, but I think that when we start with ourselves and when we can change our own experience and our own, you know, do our own trauma healing work that has more of an effect than just on us. And I think that that's a place to start. And I think that when we have a community built of people who are doing this work, you then have a community that feels more healed as well. And that you know, the benefit isn't just on the individual because they are so inextricably connected. And I think that there is this interwoven dynamic where our energy and vibration really affects the universe and the rest of the, you know, everything around us. I want to talk a little bit about, I guess, where the rubber meets the road on this, Krista, in the sense that you mentioned the TRE and the yoga and the trauma release exercises. When you have a client or a person that you're working with, someone who maybe has never had any experience with, I suppose, a body awareness or being sensitive enough to acknowledge where they've somatically stored trauma or stress or anxiety or why they're having automatic reactionary responses, you know, like anger or rage. I mean, we could give a lot of examples. What are the kind of things that you do in these modalities that you teach and facilitate to help people get in touch with their bodies, maybe for the first time on that level of sensitivity and awareness? How do you lead someone through that? Sure. So the primary modality that I use, like I mentioned, is TRE, which again is tension and trauma releasing exercises. So this is something that I discovered. I didn't create this, but I found it for my own life. So I'll go back just a little bit to give you some backstories. In the household I grew up in, I was incredibly anxious and I was dealing with anxiety. I, I used to <laughs> like to say that anxiety and I are on a first name basis. And I started having panic attacks when I was 12 years old and they lasted for almost two decades. And I tried all the things. I did everything that you're supposed to do to treat panic attacks. And basically the advice is, yeah, good luck. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of the place that I got to where I would find something and it would help a little bit and I was able to manage the symptoms, but nothing really, really relieved why they were happening. And it wasn't for lack of trying on my part. And I got to this point where I had been doing talk therapy for a while and talk therapy is great. It you know, saved my life. It served a great purpose. But I got to the point I can remember telling my ex-husband at the time, I said, I don't have anything left to talk about. These panic attacks, it's not in my head. I can keep going to therapy, but I sit there and I don't even know what to say. And I'm still having these panic attacks. And then I kind of realized, it dawned on me that if it wasn't in my head, it must be in my body. And when I had that realization, it was like, well, no shit, Krista. <laughs> if anyone's ever had a panic attack, you know that they are a physical expression. They are completely these like, I mean, there's a mental component as well, but it's a physical like event, right? And so when I had that realization, I sort of put it out to the world. I said, okay, I need something. Like, give me the tool that I need because I know it's stuck in my body. And at that point in my life, I had gotten so stressful. I mean, I, I literally just felt like the physical armoring of myself. And I said, universe, show me the way, right? And this workshop came up and I just happened to live in a town with a practitioner 
of TRE. And I started looking into it and I said, oh my God, that's it. That's the thing. I just knew it. And so I practiced with this guy. And the first time I did it, it was like, there was no looking back. I mean, that it was like an aha moment of this was exactly what I needed. And that was more than six years ago at this point. And since starting my practice, I haven't had a single panic attack. And I, in the last six years, have gone through all the life events that you could possibly imagine that would cause a person to have a panic attack. And it's because I don't need to have them anymore because my body has remembered a different way of releasing that survival energy. So I can explain a little bit more about what TRE is. So essentially what it is, is it's a set of physical exercises that we do. So, you know, as a practitioner, I guide you through these exercises and they're designed to elicit an innate shaking mechanism in the body. And this shaking, or we call it in the TRE world, we call it tremoring, is a built-in way for your nervous system to complete a stress response, right? And so Jason, you've already alluded to this, but you've experienced this and you've also witnessed it. So when you're shaking in a yoga class, you've fatigued muscles and you're feeling safe and you're feeling calm and relaxed enough that your body which knows how to do this already, allows you to begin shaking. And what that does is it starts to open up the body and turn it to a place of natural pulsation, right? So living organisms, just think about breathing, right? Think of your lungs and your abdomen expanding and contracting, expanding and contraction, contracting, your heart beating, right? Like pulsing and pulsing. And it's a vibration, okay? And when we become stuck in these trauma response patterns, we lose that fluidity in our physical bodies. And so this, this shaking that we can induce helps to restore that. And it starts to open the body back up, right? And it allows energy to start flowing through a system in a different way. And this is something that your body already knows how to do. And what we're just tapping into that wisdom of the body. So you bring up this idea of like, how do I work with people who don't have a sense of their body? And, and that's a great point because a lot of times when we have experienced trauma in our lives, one of the things that it does is that it dissociates us from our body. And it does that on purpose because that's a survival response that if you think that your body is in mortal danger, you dissociate it from it so that you don't have to experience the pain that you perceive is coming, right? And so that's a good response in the moment. The problem is, is that when that moment continues to last after the event has passed, and that's what becomes true for so many of us because we live in a world, one, where threats are continual, and two, we also live in a world where we don't give ourselves time to recover and respond, and we certainly don't do it in a way that works with our body to allow this shaking to happen. And it's not always shaking. Sometimes it's other things. Sometimes it's releases like crying. Sometimes it's releases like sweating, right? These are all different ways that your body has of burning up these stress hormones. And so what we do with TRE by bringing this shaking, and sometimes it ends up as crying. Sometimes it ends up as, this is one of my favorites, as hysterical laughter. There's actually a, a woman that I did my training with and her tremor response was that she would get these gigantic belly laughs, right? And what it is, is your diaphragm is tremoring essentially. And so it ends up producing laughter and it would just, we would you know be tremoring in a group together in a room. And she would, once she started going, 
man, the whole room would just erupt in laughter. And it was so therapeutic and, and so much fun. Like I, I'm just grinning ear to ear right now, just thinking about her doing that. But the point is, there's these different ways that our body has of releasing this stuff, right? So just more on this laughter one, I can remember when I was, I was probably nine or 10 and somebody had died. I was at the wake and I wasn't old enough to understand the full implications of this, right? And I can remember standing in line laughing so nervously and I felt so ashamed because I knew that laughing then was so disrespectful. I was like, I was old enough to understand that, but I had no idea what was happening and I felt so embarrassed and ashamed. And now looking back on it, right, this is where this nervous system literacy can help with self-compassion is I understand exactly what was happening. I was nervous as hell and that was the way that my body expressed it at the time. And I can now like go back and tell nine-year-old little girl, Krista, it's okay, honey. Like it's okay. You're not being rude. You know, and I can, I can console myself and have that compassion. But anyway, the TRE work, when we start to tap into this, it allows for a remembering right? It allows for a remembering of this wisdom that our body contains for healing itself. And the thing is, is that these tremors and the shaking that happen are automatic. They're subconscious. So we have conscious control to start and stop them and to alter the way that they happen. But essentially, if we can sort of get out of our own way, if you will, they move through and in our body in whatever way they need to, to release whatever's being held in the way that the body needs it to be done. Again, there's this wisdom that we don't need to self-direct like, oh, I'm feeling pain in my shoulder, so I'm going to tremor in my shoulder. Sometimes you're feeling pain in your shoulder and you lay down to tremor and your feet tremor and then your shoulder feels better, right? Because it's all connected. And in the same way, we can have these experiences that have happened to us that become stuck in our body. And, and sometimes it's even without our conscious awareness of they're there or where they are in our body. And when we can allow this to sort of run its course and do its healing work, the body just can mend itself. And it's it's actually a really amazing process to witness, to have both experienced it myself, but also to witness this transformation with clients that I work with. So we also work on self-regulation skills and, and I do have other embodiment techniques that I use. Again, I, I'm also a yoga instructor. So a lot of that is about mindfulness and self-awareness and embodiment practices, right? Breath work and that kind of thing. So I integrate those tools into my coaching practice, but essentially the TRE itself is working as that in and of itself. Does that answer your question? <laughs> it was such a brilliant and beautifully detailed response. And I'm so curious in terms of the idea of trusting our bodies. Whitney and I talked about this a lot on recent episodes in terms of intuitive eating and a lot of the programs around, say, diet culture and what you ought to be eating or, you know, there's so much messaging around like, you should work out this way and you should have sex this way or not have sex this way. Or you should eat this diet. Don't eat that that diet. It, it, it almost seems like allowing our bodies to have a natural completion of trauma release is part of a larger discussion. In many cases, we have been taught or conditioned to not trust our our own bodies and not trust our intuition and not trust the natural processes of intuitive eating or our sexuality or managing, in this case, talking about stress and trauma that in, in a lot of cases, I'd have to imagine it's almost like we are 
learning to trust our bodies for the first time, whether it's through this release of energy and, and trusting that mechanism or trusting that our body, again, knows what foods naturally to gravitate toward or, you know, sex is another aspect of, of shame and guilt. And to me, it just seems part of a larger lexicon of the disassociation that it's almost like a cultural directive for people not to trust themselves or trust their bodies. Does that resonate with both of you? For sure. It really does. And I think trust keeps coming up on our show over and over again. And it's something that I've had to examine a lot as well, because I'm still trying to get the roots of like where my trust issues are. It took me a while to even realize I had trust issues. I think it was a previous boyfriend that had pointed it out and he was upset because I didn't trust him. And I think in that time, I thought it was specifically about him. But over the years, I've examined it and it's come up in many relationships. It's come up in business dealings and friendships and self-trust as well. And for me to just start to unravel it, like, okay, where did this come from? A lot of it is also coming back to that idea of survival and for me, like feeling safe. And I usually don't trust things or people if I don't perceive them as being safe. If I'm afraid that I won't be physically, mentally, or emotionally safe in some capacity. And I, I think that that's part of this big struggle is, is a lot of us are just trying to survive, even though our survival isn't usually at stake. Maybe it's like not always that simple. It's not like, oh, I think I'm going to be killed today. Like we might have many centuries ago. For us in the modern world, it's like, well, how do I survive with this job that I have? How do I survive with this friend group? How do I survive in this relationship? And I think it just keeps coming back to all these protective mechanisms that end up causing big divides between us as human beings. And then that further results in us struggling with our survival. So it's literally incredibly important that we learn how to deal with these things, because if we don't, then we're just con continuing to make things worse. And we're not actually protecting ourselves as much as we might think we are. Absolutely. And I think that to your point about it's not like we wake up in the morning and think, I'm going to get killed today. The problem is, is that I started to talk about this earlier, but our nervous system isn't adapted to the world that we live in, right? So the part of your brain that is assessing for danger is your survival brain, right? And the problem is, is that your survival brain doesn't know the difference between your boss giving you a hard time at work and a cheetah coming after you. Because if you're in this activated state, any threat, perceived or real, it all gets assessed as real. And your body is doing what it's supposed to to protect you from those things. And also to your point about saying you find it hard to trust people when you're not feeling safe, you're not supposed to trust people if you don't feel safe, right? Your body is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Your survival brain is telling your thinking brain, uh-uh, don't feel safe, don't trust this person. Right. And so when again, when we exist on this level of survival constantly and we end up in this sort of stuck position of on and activation, everything feels dangerous. And then again, 24-7 news feels threatening. Inbox overflowing with email feels threatening. There's this woman that I follow on Instagram and she, I remember in her stories one time she was talking about, I think they were buying a house or something and something that just required an incredible amount of 
paperwork and bureaucratic red tape and, you know, crossing T's and dotting I's. And she was speaking to the fact that, you know, just calling and being on the phone and having to fill out forms and deal with this thing and get this letter from the bank over to this person. She's like, it's just overwhelming. And it speaks to this fact that, again, you don't know the difference. You know, we can think rationally, that's not a life threat, but it's not a place of rationality where these survival mechanisms come from. That's not the way that we're wired. That's not the way that, you know, our brain works. And to your point, Jason, about saying that, you know, I love what you said, we've been taught not to trust our bodies. And I think that that's so valid. And especially, I think, as women, that that's true. I obviously can't speak to the experience of being a man. So maybe, Jason, you can touch on that. But I know for me as a woman, we are really taught not to trust our bodies, even with things as fundamental as like our bodies giving birth, right? And the whole process of labor and delivering babies, we're taught that we're going to need, you know, I could go off on a whole tangent about this, especially having just given birth to a baby not that long ago, this idea of being told you're going to need these interventions and the doctor knows better than your own body and you need to be at a hospital because something's going to, you know, bad things are going to happen. And instead, the reality is like women's bodies have been birthing babies since the dawn of time. My body is designed to do that. And I don't have to have any, I can promise you, I don't have to have any rational thought about that happening. <laughs> it happens on its own because our bodies know what to do. It's something that we are so conditioned out of. Again, like I was saying earlier about telling little boys, don't cry, stop crying. You know, I see other parents do that. It makes me cringe and recoil on so many different levels because little boys that are taught not to fully feel and express their emotions grow into men that are taught not to feel and fully express their emotions. And then they still have them. They don't go away. And then we see toxic masculinity become this problem. And it's like, well, no shit. No wonder this is what's happening because we're training our boys to suppress this stuff until eventually it has to come out. It's like for me with my own story of these panic attacks, one of the biggest realizations I had with my tremor work is I had this aha moment of, oh my God, every panic attack I have ever had for the last 20 years has been a tremor that was trying to come out and I suppressed it because I didn't know what it was, I didn't understand it, and I was afraid of it, and I had no trust that that's what was supposed to be happening. And for me, in my body, suppressing that and holding that in over and over and over again led to panic and led to it erupting, right? It's like, again, if you've ever experienced a panic attack, it's this eruption and overflow of just unchecked, uncontrolled emotion that's chaotic. And the thing is, is that when you tremor, it's not chaotic at all. It's actually this beautiful dance that your body does, right? It's this elegant, beautiful expression that can exist. And when it's not allowed to exist in that way and become stifled, then it gets ugly. Then it feels like shit in your body. Then it feels like chaos ensuing inside until it erupts as this overwhelm and dread and heart racing and body, you know, like I, it just makes me like uncomfortable even just thinking about it, right? I have such a visceral reaction to it. But for me anyway, I realized that that's 
exactly what it was. And that's why when I had that realization and allowed myself this outlet of connecting, right, of having this allowing myself to remember, that's what finally healed it for me and then set me off on this path of of doing so much other healing work because I got out of my own way. I was able to take that thinking brain and say, you're okay, you're safe, and we're going to allow this to happen. And then it just does. I don't know. It's it's really beautiful to watch and to witness. Wow. There's just so many moments in this podcast where I feel like I'm on the other side of the microphone taking deep breaths and just, I don't know, it's like sinking, just just even listening to you, Krista, it's it's simultaneously piquing more of my curiosity and putting me at ease at the same time, which is a really beautiful thing to experience sensation-wise. You brought up kind of multiple times now this fact that we are not equipped to handle the constant bombardment of modern life. And so on the one hand, it seems that we are talking about things from our past or our lineage, things that are epigenetically stored in us that we need to deal with, things from our childhood that are traumatic or stressful. But then it also seems there's this other side of the coin, as you mentioned, with the the 24-7 news, the constant barrage of social media from billions of people all over the globe and living in extremely densely packed urban environments for many of us, not all people, but and especially exacerbated during everything with COVID in 2020. And and so I'm curious your philosophy or take, and Whitney and I've talked about this because I'm thinking about moving outside of Los Angeles and, and not being in a major city for the first time. I have often thought if I were to do better at limiting my news intake and my social media, which I am getting better at and I'm practicing that, but removing myself from the stress and realizing how sensitive I am to the bombardment of traffic, cars, smog, tens of millions of people being packed in a dense environment. And if I and one who is a sensitive being were to remove themselves from that environment and maybe live more in nature, if that would facilitate a deeper healing, if not, remove those constant barrage of stimuli assaulting our nervous system at all times. Because it feels like sometimes I'm doing the yoga and the therapy and the healing modalities simply to buffer against the constant bombardment of overstimulation, right? And so I'm curious, you know, this is kind of a long-winded question, but by removing that constant bombardment of stress in our lives, if we can, because that's a luxury. Not everyone has the ability to like, I'm going to leave the city and move to a country house. Like not everyone can do that necessarily. Maybe some people can, but I guess what I'm asking is like, how does the external stimuli play into this overstimulation and stress response of our nervous system? And can we mitigate that? Yes. To both of those, a resounding huge yes. So yes, absolutely. Removing some of those extraneous stimuli is going to help. I love what you said about that. You know, all these self-care practices that you have like yoga and things like that are, are acting as this buffer because you're absolutely right. You know, if you're staying in this situation, in your case, like living in Los Angeles, you could be taking all the time to sort of decompress and care for yourself and do these things to really set yourself up for success. But if you're in this toxic environment, you can only get so much better. You can only heal so much in an unhealthy situation, which in your case is the city of Los Angeles. And also literally being in nature is one of the things that we can do to help regulate our nervous system. It's actually kind of incredible, but it's why things like Shinrin Yoku, I think I said that right, is this idea of like forest bathing, right? We've They've actually done scientific studies on this, that it lowers your heart rate and alters your breath patterns and decreases your cortisol, right? Your stress hormones. And, and there's a reason for that is that we are animals that are designed to be in harmony with nature. And when we can go outside and be a part of nature, literally ground ourselves, bare feet 
feet on Mama Earth, it has a down-regulating effect on our nervous system, right? So you're doing two things. You're One, you're removing the extraneous stimuli, and two, you're actually providing yourself with things that help to regulate your system. There's other things that you can do. So if you are, you know, again, because like you said, it's, it's a privilege and a luxury to be able to pick up and move if moving is the thing that you need to do. But there are things that you can help regulate your nervous system with, things like yoga and breath work and TRE and gratitude journaling is another one. I like this one because it's super accessible. Gratitude practices have actually been shown to help our vagal tone, so your vagus nerve, which is an integral part of your nervous system and especially your nervous system's perceptions of safety and regulating and sort of scanning your environment external and internal. So when you do vagal toning exercises, the vagus nerve can be strengthened and conditioned. And we know, again, through scientific studies that a well-toned vagus nerve helps has a higher correlation of having a, a regulated nervous system. So that basically what it's doing is it's increasing your capacity to deal with stressors, okay? Because stress is inevitable, right? The goal is not to remove all stress from your life. We can actually grow from stress. Stress plays an important part in our lives. The problem is too much stress or stress beyond our capacity to handle it is bad. And that's also when things start to turn into trauma. And so there's a couple of different things that affect our capacity for stress. I kind of think of it like a cup, right? And when the cup starts to overflow, that's when things, then you start experiencing the ill effects of stress and trauma. And so the size of that cup and how much it can hold are determined by two things. So one, like we've been discussing, is genetics, right? Some of us are just born with bigger cups and some of us are born with smaller cups and we don't have a lot of control over that. And then the other thing that controls the size of that is these things that we can do to improve our resiliency, like vagal toning exercises, like being aware of what's happening, like practices like yoga and breath work and TRE. And so those things can help change the size of that cup so that we can handle more before it becomes a problem, before it turns into a panic attack, before it turns into insomnia, before it turns into chronic pain, before it turns into cardiovascular disease down the line, right? All these different things that we know have a correlation with too much stress in our lives. We can change that and we can control that and have an impact on that. And that's why I like, you know, this practice that I've found because I get to help coach clients through changing that for themselves. Again, we can't we can't change the genetics that we inherited. We can change what we offer our children, but we can control this. We can control what we do for ourselves. And that's where we can really find empowerment so that we can continue to live in this modern world. Wonderful collage of techniques and advice. And it's been so wonderful, Krista, to just go so deep with you in all of these ways. And you know, one thing that recently, I think this might have been a couple months ago on the podcast, I recall Whitney and I talking about was that sometimes I tend to have this feeling of like, oh God, more work to do on myself. Is it ever over? 
But listening to you and your approach with TRE and, and a lot of the transformational techniques you're using, there's just something so wonderfully soothing and approachable and heartfelt about your approach that any of those feelings I sometimes have about, oh my God, I have to do more work on myself. When is this going to be over? It's almost like that seems to dissolve during this conversation for me. And I just want to thank you for having such a loving, open approach. Like even the moment we got on the microphone before the podcast started, we were just saying how comforting and friendly and, and warm your voice is. And it's just been such an absolute pleasure to go really, really deep today. I just, I feel like I'm walking away from this conversation with so much to digest. So thank you for that. And some really great tools too, because I really didn't know any nearly as much information about the tension and trauma releasing exercises. And it's something that I want to look further into. And I think it's, it's just such a wonderful thing to introduce others, especially with your story, Krista, of how it helped you with anxiety attacks. And Jason, I'm actually curious if it's something that you would try, because I feel like sometimes you do have panic attacks or really tough times. And I don't know, have you ever tried anything like this before? No, but legitimately, I want to book a session with you, Krista, after this and go a little bit deeper into what I've been going through in terms of anxiety and panic attacks and stuff. I didn't want to necessarily dump, jump too deep down that rabbit hole, but I really do want to try out TRE and see how it feels for me. I think it could be really beneficial. Oh, that sounds great. I would be happy to help. And it's been a pleasure having this conversation and chatting with you. I'm glad that you found me so approachable. That's nice to hear. It's nice to hear that because that's what I try to offer. Because I know that that's something that your nervous system can then connect to is offering those cues of safety, right? So when we know how these things work, we can use that to our advantage, that that we can create safe, loving environments for the people that we interact with and also to ourselves, right? I'm, I'm such a huge fan of really looking at and examining the way that we speak to ourselves. I have had some profound shifts in my life. We didn't get into this part of my story, but just in realizing that my subconscious internal dialogue held the keys to so much of my healing. I had this really profound awakening to love is the only way I can describe it when I realized that my celiac disease, which is an autoimmune condition, was continuing to ravage my body despite doing, again, all the things that you're supposed to with diet and, and lifestyle changes. And I realized I had this like come to Jesus, fall to my knees, ugly tears moment where I knew that that was happening because I hated myself. And in that realization that my body was attacking itself, right? That's what an autoimmune disorder is about. It was doing exactly what I had told it to do. I was giving it these subconscious messages of self-hatred and my body was then seeing itself as the enemy and doing its job of attacking the enemy and it turned into these horrible symptoms that manifested as celiac disease for me and when i changed that it changed everything about the way that i was able to heal from that disease and everything that it it did to my system and so now i'm i'm just such a huge proponent of looking at that because how we speak to ourselves and then ultimately to others really does shape how things exist and how they occur. And, and back to this point of this connection that we all have with one another, this happens at the quantum level. And when we can affect that in a positive manner, it really does affect the whole world. So it's a huge honor to hear that from you. I'm, I'm so grateful to provide that for you. The listener, I hope that you have 
stuck. Well, if you are listening, of course, you've stuck with us through this whole thing. And and I love, Krista, as we're wrapping this episode, that you just dropped another absolutely incredible and, for me, chill-inducing piece of wisdom from your own personal experience. And as someone who continues to work on loving myself and let go of self-hatred and self-judgment, that was so perfectly timed and so unbelievably potent. And yeah, I, I just feel like I'm I'm so in awe and resonating so deeply with everything that you have shared. And for you, dear listener, if you are feeling the same, we are going to link to all of Krista's resources in the show notes at our website, which is wellevator.com. That's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. You can go there and click on the podcast section. It will take you directly to the show notes. And the show notes will contain all of the references to any books or resources we mentioned today. And most importantly, to Krista's website, her Instagram page, all of her social media links to Inside Out Healing. And you can book a consultation session with her for uh, online sessions and something that I'm absolutely going to take advantage of because, the again, the resonance and the depth today has really, it just really spoken to my heart on such a deep level, Chris. I can't thank you enough for, again, your wisdom, your heartfulness, sharing your modalities, your story and your journey. It's This has been... Um, this has been one of the, I suppose, rarer episodes that has really kind of cut to the bone with me. And I, I just, I can't thank you enough for everything you've shared with us. And, and hopefully the listener has resonated as deeply as well. Thank you so much as well. And I am really enjoying your Instagram and I can't wait to continue that journey there. So thank you for all the social media, you content that you do, because sometimes it's nice to just go on social media and find something that really feels good for the heart. And I love seeing that. I love this conversation. And I'm I'm also just like so excited to hear everything that Jason said because I care so much about Jason that when I hear him expressing that something's helpful to him, it, it makes me feel good. So <laughs> I just loved listening to all these realizations between the two of you. So thank you for this wonderful conversation, Krista. Well, thank you both. It was a huge honor and it was a great time. So thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.